We are in Matthew chapter 19. We have been going through the book of Matthew now for quite a long time. A couple breaks here and there. And we're going to start today with Matthew 19 starting at verse 13. Um, Matthew 19, 13. And we're going to go all the way through 30. And I know you're thinking, oh, Fudd, come on. That many verses? We can do it, I promise. Um, so <coughs> here's the thing, though. Before we get started, uh, 19, 13. There's a couple things I want you to know. Number one, um, most of the things that you've heard today, uh, here today, if you've been in church for any kind of time, you've been a Christian for any kind of time, most of these things you're going to hear are things that you've heard before. So there won't be any terribly new information um, that's going to be coming to you. But the second thing I want you to really consider and think about with me is this. Um, This information or these things about Jesus are really life-changing. And so what I want us to do as we consider salvation, we're just going to be looking at uh, what are some of the things about salvation that we should know? What are some of the things about salvation that should shape our affections, shape the way that we respond, a proper response to God? Uh, what are some of the, those, uh, those certain things? So what I want us to do is before we go in uh, to this time, I want us all just to pray and ask God, God, some of these things might be reviewed. Some of these things might be things I know. But the gospel, your mercies are new every morning. And I I know that's true. So would you, as we go into some of these things that maybe I've heard before, um, change my heart, change my mind, help me see uh, some of the things of the gospel, some aspects of the gospel, or as I revisit some of the truths of the gospel, reignite my heart for a passion for those truths, a deep love for those truths in, in a way that maybe I haven't experienced before. Um, because I want us all to walk out of here life-changing. The the things we're going to hear today are life-changing. They can really change the way we think and move and and, and, um, interact with others. So we're going to go into a time of prayer, and I would just ask that you would pray those things along with me um, for, for our hearts. So let's pray. Lord, All of us have, most of us have incredibly busy lives. We're in school, we've got reading and tests that maybe we haven't done that we should have, or it's just a lot to keep up with. We have kids, we know just how time-consuming trying to do all the things that they need are, and we want to do them well and we want to love them well and we have jobs and we're trying to learn we're trying to get involved or maybe we have new friends or I don't know God there's just so many things that really take our time and and can cause us to be pretty busy which in and of itself can't isn't necessarily a bad thing but whenever the busyness of life pulls us away from Jesus and we've led it from new jobs to school or whatever, God. This is where we need for your conviction to come. This is where we need for what's been true of us, what's been declared true of us because of the gospel to take root down deep in our, whole, our, our souls and da- way down deep in our hearts, Lord, and, and change us and help us w- go through the process of repentance, of letting busyness capture our affections over Jesus. 
So I pray for us all, God, as we probably will hear some things that we've heard before. That the wonder of this great message would do an amazing work in our hearts and that we would leave, we would leave today with a changed life. We would leave today with renewed affections for Christ. This is a miracle that we can't do in of ourselves and that we are completely dependent upon you to do. And so, I pray this for myself along with all my friends here, Lord, that you would do that. May we all willfully put ourselves under the authority of your word and the conviction of your spirit to have a life that's changed by Jesus because of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> um, as I said, we've been going through Matthew 19, or been going through the book of Matthew for a while, and we're in Matthew 19. And so if we kind of uh, zoom in on the section that we're in, which has kind of started back in Matthew 18, going through around 2021, 20, uh, th- that little section that's going on, we've, we've entitled Kingdom Community. And basically inside that little section, chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, what Jesus has been doing is saying, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom community, if you're going to be a believer inside of this community, then there's ways that you need to interact with each other. There's, there's things you need to know as a Christian um, that, have, that are characteristic of Christians. And so we've seen when someone's in sin, we know how to hold them accountable from Matthew 18. We see whenever someone needs to be forgiven of sin, we know how to go to them and, and forgive them if they've sinned against us. We've seen over in Matthew 19 uh, previously, we've seen marriage. And so it's kind of pointing us to marriage into what we're going to see here with children. We're going to see how we should interact and what, are, what is the kingdom value on children. And so we've just kind of been going through this. And what Christ has been doing as we've been going through 18 through 20 is what are some of the characteristics of Christians that if they're going to be a part of this kingdom community that should be true of them? What do their marriages look like? What does forgiveness look like? Those kinds of things. Now, <clears throat> as we're going through this entire set of uh, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, that's, that's what the big picture idea is. Now, when we zoom in on today, 13 through 30, when we zoom into those particular verses, there's going to be one kind of main point of the text today. Now, I know this is going to take us all by surprise. Shocker. The main point of today is the gospel. We, I know that amazes you. I know, I know that's like, really, Fudd? The gospel? You never talk about that. But um, that, that is, that's sarcasm if you haven't been here before. I always talk about the gospel. Um, so that's, that's what's going on here today. Now, so as we're looking at this set of verses 13 through 30, there's one kind of big banner that we're going to see is the, is the main point of the text that we're going to put ourselves under, which is that salvation is a free gift from God that man cannot earn. That's the gospel. Salvation is a free gift from God that man cannot earn. That's the, that's the big point of the text. Now, l- this text, along with any others, whenever you're looking at, and by the way, the gospel should be something you should see in every text. Like, every single verse is about the gospel. Everything's about Christ and what he's done for us. All those things will eventually take us to the gospel. And here, it's no different. So we're looking at salvation as a free gift from God that man cannot earn. That's the primary point of the text. Now, as we're going through it, we're going to have some secondary principles and truths that you're going to be able to see um, that are true of the kingdom community. Where if you're looking at 13, you know, the disciples, the, the children are coming, the disciples are like, get the kids out of here. Jesus got more important things to do. So like a secondary principle, a secondary truth that we're going to see is that children are important to God. Now that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is the gospel. But we're going to see some other things as we're going through this, some secondary truths. So I'm going to I'm going to kind of be bouncing back and forth between both of them. But I want you to remember from the outset, because sometimes when I'm bouncing back and forth, I don't say, I'm in point, you know, over here in secondary truths. Now I'm back up to, I don't do that. 
because that's kind of weird anyway. But the one thing I want you to know is that the main point of this text that we're going to be looking at is that salvation is a free gift from God and which man cannot earn. David Platt says it this way. I, I like how he says it. Salvation has absolutely nothing to do with human merit. Salvation has absolutely nothing to do with human merit. And salvation has absolutely everything to do with divine mercy. So if you are saved, it means that you did not do anything in and of yourself to get yourself saved. The only reason if you're in Christ, and if you're not in Christ, the only reason you would come to know Christ is if God shows you divine mercy. Now, if you're not a believer, don't fret. God has just shown us divine mercy in the cross. So if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you want to experience life with Christ forever, then faith is required on your behalf, which God gives, and then you can be a Christian. So we don't need to fret by hearing that, like, oh no, then what am I supposed to do? Believe. That's what you're supposed to do. So the message is the same for us all. But um, salvation, has, that's kind of the big point. Salvation has nothing to do with human merit, and it has everything to do with divine mercy. So <clears throat> we're diving into 13 through 30, and as we're looking at these two texts, which if you've been in church for a little while, you've probably heard it, you know, the children come to them, the disciples are like, get them out of here. Like, that's the first set. And then the second set is the rich young ruler, where he comes and he says, what do I need to do to be saved? And you're thinking, why are we putting those two together? Why, why, what's going on? Why are they together? Do they have anything to do with one another? Well, um, all three synoptic gospels, synoptic just means same eye. All the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put, when they tell the story of letting the children come to me, they always put the rich young ruler right beside it. All three of those um, gospels do that. And what I think they're trying to do is help us see that there's relation between these two um, stories, if you will. The writers are wanting us to see something. And so um, let, me, let me try to explain what I think we're going to see here. Um, th- there's a contrast between the two. That's the reason why they're together. The, if we kind of look at it in a, in a salvific way, a way that has to do with salvation when we're seeing about children, the thing about children is they're completely and utterly dependent upon their parents for everything until a, a certain age. But for a long time, they're com- and that's, that's the same thing about salvation that he's trying to help you see. God wants us to be in salvation where we humble ourselves to the point that we realize that we are completely humble and utterly dependent upon him for salvation. That's the first story. So we see, and well, let me go to the second story. We have, the second story is we have someone who is seemingly actually completely in control of everything by himself. He is not utterly dependent on anyone. Children utterly dependent, utterly dependent on their parents. The second guy, Rich Young Ruler, needs no one in life to carry on his daily affairs. And so there's a contrast between the two. So let me, let me just say it to you this way. Um, in the first story, you have the disi- when the children are coven- coming to him, you have the disciples rejecting those people, the children, but yet you have, Jesus, you have Jesus receiving them. And in contrast, in the second story, where you have the rich young ruler, you have someone coming that the disciples would probably seemingly receive, but that Jesus rejects. That's the contrast between the two. And it's all pointing us to... Um, well, the first thing is to say, why is that then? Why is it that the writers want us to see where Jesus receives and the disciples reject, but that is actually the right way, and then the second way where the disciples will probably seemingly receive this guy, but Jesus rejects them. Why is that right here? What's the point? And I want us to all zoom in on 26, and we're going get to get the biblical verse for what I think is the main point of the text regarding our salvation. It says this in verse 26. <clears throat> Jesus looked at them and said, we're going to 
get to it, but let me just let you look at it. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's, that's, that's the main point of what we're going to be looking at. If, if you write in your Bible, and, it, and it's okay with God to do that, I would probably underline verse 26, but just as a reminder to maybe memorize that one for the week. Whenever it comes into salvation, is it possible for me to earn my salvation? Can I do things? Because I really feel like I'm capable. I really feel like I have some abilities. I feel like I can do some things, and God's going to really be happy with me. It's impossible with man, but with God it is possible. Therefore, when you are saved, you don't want to live a life that shows haughtiness or pridefulness about your salvation instead you give all the glory over to god there's no room for pride we come just like a child humble and utterly dependent on him to save but he will save he's mighty to save and so there's a there's a good news here about verse 26 that reminds us that even though we are completely incapable god is fully capable which as i said some of this is review but hopefully that truth does not send you away from God, but makes you run towards him that he would choose to save you. It should, it should amaze us that in divine mercy he would still save and choose you to be his child. So, um, kind of back here to the main point, which is that salvation is a free gift of God, which man cannot earn. Let me give you a couple verses um, other places in scripture that kind of um, reteach that same thing. So the first half, salvation is a free gift from God. This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. More than likely you've heard it, but let's read it again. For by grace, that means nothing you've done. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Okay, so you've done something. You've exhibited faith. Okay, so let's talk about that faith. Where did, from whence did it come? From you or from the Lord? Look at this. Continue on in verse, um, verse 8 and 9. And this is not your own doing, okay? The faith is not my own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So if I had faith or I got saved because of works, then I could boast. And then Paul says, no, you can't boast. Salvation is a free gift of God, all utterly on him. And then it ends it with by saying, so that no one may boast. So we know that salvation is a free gift from God, from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, multiple other verses, but we're going to look at that one. Now let's look at the other side, in which man cannot earn. It's not that we will not, we, we cannot earn. Let me read one verse to you um, that's showing this. This is Romans 9, 16. Romans 9, 16. It says, so then it, now the it there, I know I'm kind of grabbing a verse and pulling it out and proof texting in your mind at least, maybe not. Um, the it is salvation now i invite you i invite you not to trust me on that i invite you to go to romans 9 and read the whole chapter for yourself and see that the it is salvation so that you can do the good study for yourself it would be profitable for you um, i invite you to do that but right now don't do that during this like actually listen to me the next 40 minutes but just do that later on so we're just going to say that the it is salvation so so then it which is salvation so then salvation depends not on human will or exertion you cannot save yourself. There is nothing that you can do. So then salvation depends not on human will exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 16. So our salvation is completely and wholly and solely an act of mercy of God for us. But if we're in Christ, it means that he has poured out mercy to you to save you. That there was nothing lovely in you or me but that he willingly said, I want to show mercy to you and lavish love on you by, by 
putting my son forward for you, and by faith, which I've given you, you can put your faith in him, and you can be received unto Christ forever. All your sins forgiven forever. This is amazing, amazing news here. And so that's kind of the big picture thing that we're looking at here as we're going into. Salvation is a free gift of God, which man cannot earn, which should always cause Christians to be astounded and amazed and want to just explode with affections for Christ that he would do that for us because we're not worthy of it. All right, now, as we've been talking about marriage, we're going to go into a time where he talks about children. Um, The point of this text is not salvation of children, but let's go ahead and look at it. It says in 13 through 15, let's read it. It says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven and he laid his hands on them and they went away so um, this is a belief kind of going back into genesis 48 way back into um, jewish culture that there was a uh, someone who was kind of thought of as, as as a good teacher or an an elder statesman if you will someone back in 48 we've got um isaac doing it no i'm sorry we got jacob doing it but here this is these people looked at G- jesus as someone we think you are an amazing man of God. We want to bring our children to you so that you'll lay your hands on them and pray for them. And this is just a, a, an act of blessing. They wanted Jesus to bless their children. And so the disciples, whenever they're coming, are like, no way. He's got more important things to do. Get these kids out of here. And, you know, tossing them to the side. And we see in verse 15 where it says, and he laid his hands on them and they went away. Obviously, Jesus, there's some interaction we don't have where Jesus informed the disciples that they were completely wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so what's the point here? Is it just that we need to see, as in secondary issues, children are important to God? That's it. That's one thing. But there's a bigger thing. So let's, let's talk about the secondary principles where Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, hey, children are important to God. Now, um, D.A. Carson says this regarding the, the children, the side thought on children, the, the truth of the principle, the secondary thing that we're trying to hear here, is that although children of the time in this particular Jewish culture were deeply cherished. Now, there's been cultures that don't cherish children, but this culture, in the first century, when you were Jewish, in that particular culture, they did deeply cherish children. They were very happy to have these children that were blessings from God. They knew Psalm 127 or 8 or 6 or whatever. They were trying to fill their quiver. They, know they, they were trying to do that, get, get at least seven. Um, so they were deeply cherished, but he says this, although children were deeply cherished, they were also thought to be, in some ways, negligible members of society. So they, they were cherished, but they still kind of thought, um, you need to get on the side, be quiet for at least 20 years, and then just, just sit there, be quiet, and learn, and then maybe we'll allow you to talk, all right? And so Jesus sees this going on in the disciples' heart, and so Jesus is constantly having to remind, reshape, reteach the disciples um, things that he's already taught them. And so what he's going to do here, this is an object lesson happening here of the thing that he's already taught them back one chapter ago in 18. So let's look at 18, just as a reminder, if you, like six months ago, Jack taught through <laughs> chapter 18. Um, and so I'm going to remind us of that t- particular teaching in verses 1 through 6 of 18 that helps us see that J- God thinks children are important. And so what Jesus is doing in this particular set of verses in 19, 13 through 15 is just taking the disciples back to the teaching that he gave in 18, 1 through 6 and helping them see just a reminder, hey, God, hey guys, God likes children. He's actually pro-children. So look what he says here in 18, 1 through 6. It says, at that time the disciples came to children, wanting to know who's the greatest in, in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, where's the child? And he put him right in the middle of all the disciples. 
And he said, I truly say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not asking them to become, you know, the Brad Pitt brat movie, or what's that called, with a button dude where he, like, reverses his age. He's not saying, you need to reverse your age now and become younger. Then you can go to heaven. What he's saying is, there's a characteristic of this child that is reflected in the fact that he, he is completely and utterly humble and dependent upon people. And that heart shows that what you should have for salvation, you should be completely and utterly dependent upon God for your salvation. And so he's using this child as an object lesson, and then he's going to talk about the importance of children, where he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's There's the salvation teaching, and here's the importance of children. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, the little ones can be taken both ways as Christians or as children, um, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned to the depths of the sea. In other words, God prizes children. God cares about children so much that if you don't, then somebody should tie a big boulder to you and send you down at the bottom of the Atlantic. So that's kind of the general teaching. So he's reminding them here back over in 19, hey guys, I really care about children. But the more important object lesson as the children are coming that Jesus is wanting them to see we see that in the second half of 14. Look when he says, let the little, little children come to me and do not hinder them. Right here. For, so Jesus is trying to say, there's something greater than just this exchange that I want you to know I care about kids. There's, there's, a, there's a bigger picture that I'm trying to make here, which is about salvation. For to such, as in people um, that are going to be like children in regard that they're utterly dependent upon God, they realize they can't earn their salvation, and they are humble enough to admit it, to say they need God only for their salvation, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing that we need to see, the first thing about our salvation we need to see from this is um, salvation is given to the humble who come to God like a child. Salvation is given to the humble. There's no haughtiness here. There's no pridefulness. It's not haughty like, you know, the the 21st century word haughty, H-O-T, it's H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, haughty, prideful, arrogant. God does not extend salvation to them. He extends salvation to the humble, those who realize that they are completely dependent upon the Lord and the Lord alone for salvation. And so he helps the disciples see that and he brings in the object lesson of the children just so they understand that (coughs) children were important to him, but more so Um, The illustration of this child is what they need to get. The object lesson of humility and faith that Jesus finds acceptable is um, faith and humility just like this child has in regard to his parents because he's completely, children are completely dependent upon their parents. All right, so that's the first little section. Now we're going to go into the second where we're going to see the young man. Um, And this is a, uh, a story where it's all directly about salvation. And we're going to be able to pull some things out from this as we're seeing uh, the salvation story that Jesus has. Now, here's one of the most striking things. Maybe you've heard this story before. Um, Let's look at it real fast. Let's just go from 16 to 22. It says, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said back to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The rich young ruler said back to him, the young man said back to him, all of these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, 
if you would be perfect, go sell what you, ha- what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And then verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is, what's striking here is that this is an evangelistic encounter of Jesus. Okay? Jesus. If there's anybody that's supposed to be the best at evangelism, that's not supposed to quote-unquote fail at evangelism, we would think it's Jesus. So the striking thing is that this man comes up, Jesus tells him the gospel, and the man walks away, and Jesus lets him walk away. That's pretty striking. Aren't you God? I mean, isn't your evangelism, evangelistic prowess better than that, Jesus? Don't you have the ability as he's walking away, say, wait, 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 let me, let me throw some other stuff at you. I, here's, here's what I want you to realize. Um, let, me, let me read 1 Corinthians 1.18, and let's get an understanding of, of what's going on and how even Jesus in, evang- in evangelistic endeavors, which means where he shares the gospel, um, people walk away and Christ lets them walk away. This is 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel. The good news that you can only be saved by God's terms. For the word of the cross or the gospel is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So when the gospel is presented and they don't want to believe in the gospel on God's terms, they're going to walk and you, you can't alter the message. You can't, okay, let me, let me uh, take something out and maybe you'll come. No, it's, here's the message of the gospel. And to those who think that that's foolishness, who don't want to be saved on God's terms, will walk away. However, those who are being saved, it's the power to save. When they hear that, they realize that they're a wrecked sinner and they respond by saying, yes, they don't think that that message or that gospel is foolishness. And hopefully if you're in Christ, this is you. You say, That's the power of God to save me. That's what I want in my life. And so here we're going to see an interaction where Jesus himself is going to have um, an evangelistic encounter and the man literally walks away from him. So let's let's get an understanding about what the um, what the conversation's about so that we can see how it relates to the overall message of salvation for us. The first one that we saw with the children is that salvation is given to the humble who come to God like a child. And so there's going to be some correlation with the second one. Verse 16, it says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, notice this quote, what he says. What good deed, action-oriented, I can do something, must I do to have eternal life? So he is automatically coming in with an idea, a view of salvation. It is something that I can do. Now, um, something that we should know about this guy, if, if you kind of look at, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of clump together for us some things about this guy. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that he's got money. Luke says that he's extremely rich. Matthew and Mark says he has great possessions. So he's got lots of cash flow. The second thing is, verse 20 tells us that he's young. So he's rich and he's young. And then Luke 18, 18, as it recounts this particular story, says that he's a ruler. So he's got power. So I mean, He's got it all. Like, ladies, this is the guy you want, you know, usually. Um, he's not a believer, so he's not the guy you want. So to strike that I just said that. However, this guy's got money, he's got power, and he's young. He's been so gifted. He has 
such affluence that whenever he wanted something, he was able to buy it. Whenever he needed something, he had the gifting and the abilities to make it happen. And he has accomplished it at a young age. It didn't take him till his, you know, 70s or 60s. He's done it maybe at 30. He's finally arrived already at 30. He's got it all. He's been able to do everything, which is important, able to do everything on his own power because he's gifted and he's rich and he's talented and he's got people that will do what he says he's got leadership qualities so he's used to being able to do things which helps us understand verse 16 where he comes up and says what do i need to do to be saved i've been able to do everything my whole life up until now i've been able to accomplish everything up until now surely i can do this too what's the good deed i got to do in order to finally have eternal life so another thing that we can notice is that for those people that are the upper echelon of giftedness which we all like uh, those guys like can do everything and by 30 they're billionaires what we know is true or whatever millionaire what we know is true is once they finally arrive you see what's going on in their heart they're never satisfied they already realize something is still not here so if you're chasing riches realize you may accomplish it you might not but you may accomplish it but you will not be satisfied. There's something in this man's heart that knows something's missing still. Something's not right. So he hears this man, Jesus, had the me- has the message. And so he goes up to him and goes, I need eternal life. I know that I need eternal life. I've been able to do it all on my own capability. Surely there's a good deed that I can do that will help me see this. Now, notice that he says, good deed. This is where it gets crazy because Jesus is, you never had like seen a conversation where people are talking like this? But what happens is this person is kind of talking here, but this person is kind of talking here, and this guy has no idea what this guy's saying. That's what's going on here. This guy's just all right here, and Jesus is answering those questions, but also doing something up here, and the guy's just blinded to it. So let's, let's see here. Um, he says, what? Notice what he says, good deed. Jesus is going to focus in on the fact that this guy thinks that he can do good deeds. He can't do good deeds. No one can do good deeds outside of Jesus. Any good deed, even if it's something that we would say is good, if it's not done for the glory of Jesus, it's not a good deed. It's done for selfish motivation. If we don't do it for the glory of Jesus, then we haven't done it for Jesus. Therefore, although the deed might be good, the, the motivation behind it still was sinful. And so this guy doesn't see all those things, and he thinks that he can do good deeds. And so... He comes up because what's the good deed I can have? And Jesus, in that very first little f- question, the very first question, answers this whole question right there. When he says, why do you ask me about what is good? And then he, the little response, there's only one who's good. So he's saying, what good deed must I do? Why do you talk about what's good? You can't do what's good. Only one person can do what's good, and that's God. And you're not God. So you can't do anything good. But the guy does again, this is, but Jesus answers it like here, but he really is kind of answering up here, but the guy doesn't see it. He doesn't understand it. So the guy's still thinking, well, all right, um, God can do good stuff, then maybe I can as well. And then Jesus has a second little follow-up here. Now, before I read it, I know, at least for me, when I first read this, this second little part here, verse uh, 17, I think, wait a second, Jesus, you just totally contradicted everything you just said. He's asking, what are the things I can do to be saved? We realize that man can't save himself. Only God can save. He, he's in, man is incapable of doing it. And then here it says, what, he asks what good deed he says. And then you're going to say, if you would enter life, this is the second half of 17, keep the commandments. 
wait a second, Jesus. Did you just say that I can actually do something to be saved? That, that, that doesn't, seems to contradict. All right, let me, let me say this. That second half of 17 does not contradict what he said at all. As a matter of fact, it actually reinforces or enhances the point that Jesus is trying to make by saying, let me, let me tell you what I mean. D.A. Carson, let me quote D.A. Carson first. He's going to say it way better than me. This does not mean that eternal life is earned by keeping God's laws. It doesn't mean that, oh, if you keep the commandments, you'll be, you'll be saved, because you can't. Jesus tells him to keep the commandments precisely because he does not understand that he does not have the purity to keep them. He can't inherit eternal life. In other words, oh, you want to be saved. Keep the commandments, because when you go keep the commandments, you realize that you can't keep the commandments. Then you realize you're not able to do good deeds. Then you realize the only one who's able to do good deeds is God, and I'm not God. Therefore, now I'm going to go back to verses 13 through 15, realize that I'm just like a child, that I need to humble myself, admit that I can't do good things, and that I'm solely and wholly dependent upon God. So Jesus is like, oh, okay, you want to inherit eternal life? Go keep the commandments. Really try, and you'll see that you're a failure. You'll see that you can't do it. Now, the man, again, Jesus answers up here. The man only hears it right here. So he's like, oh, okay, keep the commandments. Which ones? Which ones do I need to do then? He's still operating on, I've always been able to get stuff done, and surely I can do this. And so look what he says here. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones then? <laughs> this is awesome. I love, when I first read this, kind of breeze through it, and I don't really see what Jesus is doing. And as I studied, like, this is so awesome. This is what he says. All right, which ones? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall, have, um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Ten Commandments, this is what Jesus just did. The Ten Commandments, the first four are called the, the first table, if you will. And those first four commandments deal with how man interacts with God. That's it. And so, um, have no other idols before me. Love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Um, keep the Sabbath. Those kind of things. And then the second half, from 5 to 10, or the second table of the law, is how man interacts with man. That's how the, the Ten Commandments are broken down. First four, interaction with God. Second half, in man interaction with man. And what Jesus does here is he goes, oh, which ones? Jesus goes, um, number 5, number 6, number 7, number 8, and number 9. He, he leaves off 10 for some reason. I'm not sure why. And then, if you notice right there at uh, the end of verse 19, and he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Later on in the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, there was someone, and we know that in the second greatest commandment, where they said, you know the Ten Commandments? Let me just kind of um, summarize the whole second table of the law and just say, if you just want to put the second table of the law in one sentence, it's you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the guy's like, I can keep all the commandments. Which ones? And Jesus is like, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And by the way, if you're missing it, love your neighbor as yourself. And basically he's telling him, as he answers this, when the guy says, which one should I command? The point that Jesus is trying to make, the guy's hearing, oh, you need to do this, this, and this. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is, you have never been able to not murder. You've never been able to not commit adultery. You've never been able to not steal. You've never been able to not lie. He's saying, you're a liar. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a stealer. You don't honor your father and mother. And you don't love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's trying to help him see. But he's like, oh, well, which ones? Those? Okay. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with those. And so he answers, all of these I've kept. <laughs> oh, you're missing it. You're just so missing it. And then he says, what do I still lack? The, the what do I still lack is just a revisiting of verse 16 
where he wants to know what he needs to do to be saved. Well, I've done those, so what is it then? What's the one good deed I need to do that I've always been capable of getting stuff done so that I can receive eternal life? And so, um, Jesus answers by saying this. Now, in verse 21, the first four words of verse 21 just say, Jesus said to him. That's all, that's all it says in Matthew. But in the other two stories, Mark and Luke, there's a little bit added to the answer. So, Jesus is going to get pretty pointed here. If you read the rest of Jesus' answer in 21, he gets pretty pointed with him. Basically, he's like, you're not getting it. Go sell everything you have then. Just, you've kept them all? Fine. Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. I don't want you tied down by anything. You have an idolatrous heart. I want you to kill the idolatrous heart. You can't have idols in me. Get rid of the idols if you want to follow me and have eternal life. He, he's going to be really pointed with him in 21. But this is... This is, this is so awesome about Jesus. It, it, he's going to be pointed, but he's also going to be very, very tender. This is difficult for me. Maybe not for you, but whenever I'm at least feeling some bit like I need to be pointed here, I need to be direct, I lack tenderness. I, I want to be tender. But in Mark, right before Jesus answers, it says that um, he looked at him and loved him. Mark is wrote because Peter told him so Peter was there at this particular moment because he's going to blurt out something in just a minute and so Peter as he's recounting to Mark he's saying when that rich young ruler said that there was something about the countenance of Jesus's face before he gave the answer I could literally see as Jesus looking at him love coming out of his eyes towards him and Luke says that Jesus was saddened deeply saddened before he said it so we see that Jesus is going to be pointed but very tender, so tender that Mark says he looked at him and loved him. Luke says that he was very sad. Matthew says, and he looked at him and he said, if you would be perfect, you think you're perfect, okay, fine. You want to be perfect. This is what you need to do. Sell everything you have. Sell what you possess. Give it all to the poor. And you think you have treasures, but I am going to offer you treasures. Get rid of all that thing and find your treasure with me. Treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You've amassed earthly treasures. The only real treasure is Jesus. So sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor. Become a pauper, a poor person, and follow me for the rest of your life. There's your answer. And look what it says. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He left with the same view of salvation. I want to do something. I don't like the idea that everything's done for me. I need to just get rid of all my idols and, and come and follow Jesus. And it says he left sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was loaded. He bought Apple stock in 1980 um, or whatever. So he had lo lots of money. So here's the second thing. Um, here's the second thing about salvation that we need to see. Eternal life cannot be earned. This man thought that he could buy it, verse 16. Eternal life cannot be earned. Jesus requires undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience he requires undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience when he asked the question what do i still lack with all of his power and all of his intellect and all of his money he's always been able to accomplish things and god is trying to help him say get rid of your of your thoughts that you can earn it you can't earn salvation and when he says in 21 if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess. Jesus is saying, you think you're perfect, fine. Go sell everything you have. Give it all away. And then you will be rich with treasures in heaven because I will be your treasure, not the idols that you're holding on to. So 
um, D.A. Carson says, what Jesus suggests here is not simply to the man, sell your stuff, but instead, he is saying, I want undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. I want undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. So, let's just kind of look at this man and look at ourselves. In this particular story, the idol of this man's heart is money. And Jesus is telling him, you want to be saved, sell everything. He's not telling all of us, hey, if you want to be a Christian, go sell everything. Or else everybody would just do that, right? We'd all, fine, sell everything I have. For some of us, that's easy. For some of us, that's difficult. He's driving deeper to this man's heart. What's going on in this man's heart and what he's doing for us is we have idols in our hearts. And he wants us, for this man, it's money. For us, it's something else. He wants us to identify what that is and say, I don't want that idol. Instead, I'm going to show undivided loyalty towards Jesus and have full-hearted obedience towards Jesus. So what we need to pull out of this is, is this. For this man, it was money. What is it for you? What is it for you that's your idol? Self-image, maybe it's money, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's you don't have a spouse and you want a spouse, maybe it's children, maybe it's your job, maybe it's, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's maybe it's not those neutral things, maybe it's sinful things, maybe it's um, addiction to pornography or just a wretched, filthy heart that's mean towards people or something crazy like you rob banks i don't know i mean who knows what it is there's so many things that are our idols that we hold up and jesus is saying whatever the idol of your heart is for this it was for this man it was money i want you to kill that idol and have undivided loyalty towards me full hearted obedience that's what he's calling for so to the man get rid of money to us get rid of your idols and we need to kill the notion that says that we can earn our salvation um spurgeon looking at this particular man, remarking on the fact that he had great wealth and wouldn't follow Jesus. And talking about, and he's kind of looking at it and he's saying, Christians with great wealth, let, let me say something to you. He says, Christians that own and have enormous riches. Um, he finds it amazing, basically. And he says, instead, we should have compassion for those in poverty, zeal for truth, and a love for doing good. And if we have those things, then... What follows is not Christians having enormous riches, but instead not, not very many riches at all. I've been studying Spurgeon over the last, I don't know, month or so, and this man lived by that. I mean, he gave away tons of money. As a matter of fact, a side story, I didn't even tell his first service. On his 25th um, anniversary of being a pastor at a church, the church gave him, an en- I guess, an enormous amount of money for, you know, in the 1860s or so in England. They gave him pounds, you know. It's like our dollars. And they gave it to him. They said, we don't want you to spend this on other things. We only want you to use this money just for yourself. Just for yourself. Use it all. He took it, and he gave half of it to an almshouse that helped single mothers, and he gave the other half away to other ministries. Gave it all away. He, he lived by this. So when he's saying, don't be captivated by money, he's not just saying it out of the blue. I mean, he really lived it out. And what Christ is wanting us to see, and that should be the followers, that should be all of his followers, not captivated by wealth or whatever our idol is. Instead, cast that aside and don't let it captivate our hearts. But instead, um, let Jesus be our treasure. So eternal life cannot be earned and Jesus requires undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. So the man leaves and then there we have a little conversation here with Jesus and, and the disciples in 23 through 30. And so Jesus <coughs> said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It's very difficult for a man who's got money to not be like that rich young ruler is what he's saying. It's so hard when they have lots of money. They've always been able to do things and they can't comprehend that you're not capable of salvation. And it's difficult, is what he says. And he says in 24, this is a proverb. It's just a proverbial statement in 24. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's just a proverb. Let me, let me kind of alleviate some bad teaching you've heard. Um, maybe you heard, back in Jerusalem, there was this gate called the needle. And what it was is it was really difficult for a camel to get through it. So Jesus is not saying rich man can't get to heaven, but back in Jerusalem, the camels had to get down on their knees and they had to squeeze kind of through. Like, like you can just picture the man pushing the camel through there. <laughs> like pushing through the little gate called needle and finally he gets to the other side. So he's saying it's not, it's not difficult, but it's possible. And that's not actually true. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. There's no man pushing a camel through the, the needle thing. Um, and if that were true, then it kind of totally contradicts verse 26. 26 tells us, with man, this is impossible. It's not kind of possible on your own way to get saved. It's not. It's impossible for you to get saved in and of your own self. It's only possible because God has made it possible. He's the only one that is capable of your salvation. Um, so the third thing I want you to see about your salvation is this. Salvation is completely impossible for man without God. God must do it. God must save you. Which doesn't lead us to rebellion, but glad-hearted submission and holy affection, love for him, that he would choose us. All right, so let's keep going. In 25, where it says, and the disciples heard this, like, well, if that's the case, you know, who can be saved, basically? So they were... Uh, greatly astonished and said who can be saved and he says yeah no one with man it's impossible but with god all things are possible so yes you can be saved um and moving on to 27 peter you know the uh, mouth that's the shape of a foot peter said to him well see jesus look at us we've left everything we're not like that guy look at us jesus aren't you so proud pat me on the head like he's so i'm so happy and peter says hey jesus we've left everything and followed you what were we gonna have Peter, you know, there's sometimes where he calls him the devil, but here Jesus is going to be merciful. He's, he's merciful to the guy. Maybe he's just kind of feeling merciful still. Not going to call him the devil here. Um, but he is going to tell him a pretty pointed truth that I want us to take down. Let's kind of take a little step back and let's understand what he's about to say. So far, in regard to salvation, the thir we've seen three things. And all these things are kind of dealing with that moment of what we call justification, the moment we're saved. We've, he's helping us see that man can't do it. The only way it's going to happen is if man humbles himself and realizes they're utterly dependent upon God. It's only an act of God, a free gift from God that we can be saved. And <clears throat> when God does it, we, we cannot earn it. It's impossible for us, and it's all God. So we kind of talked about that. But then, after we're saved, there's this moment of conversion right but then we we're still alive it's not like saved we fly up to up to heaven and it's all over that doesn't happen when we're saved god leaves us here as witnesses acts 1 8 we have a message now to go proclaim second corinthians 5 17 through 21 we we are now ministers of reconciliation we are here for a purpose so what what is our life supposed to look like what what's what's the account of our life supposed to supposed to feel like and act like and be if we finally believe that we can't do it it's all god now we we trust in him we put our faith that he gave us and we are saved what is the rest of our life supposed to look like and so peter as he's kind of saying i've done it jesus i've done it give me a compliment what do i get um jesus is going to 
actually try to point Peter to that reality of what the rest of your life is supposed to look like as a Christian. Now, this convicts me. This, this next little part here convicts me because I, I know my heart is so captivated with things. Number one, myself. And number two, whatever I want at that moment. And a lot of times it's not Jesus. I mean, I have to, like you, remind myself of the gospel constantly that I am a child that needs to be humbled continually. That I am incapable of salvation and that I should have proper directed affections to Jesus, not selfish, inward um, thoughts for myself. And Jesus is wanting to say, this is what your life is supposed to look like, Peter. This is what you're going to get. Look what it says. What do we get, Jesus? 28, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, can we just stop? Let's just picture that for a second. The new world, no sin. God, Jesus, sitting on a throne, ruling and reigning, not over a country, not over a city, the whole world, and all of time of creation. Ruling and reigning and sitting on his throne. That's enough to make your knees buckle. That's enough to give us a right perspective of how he's worthy of our glory, or of his own glory, and worthy of our worship. Just an amazing picture. The Son of Man will be sitting on his glorious throne. So Jesus gets into what's known as eschatological terms, words about the end times, and he says, um, when the Son of Man is sitting on his throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he looks at him, and he says, Peter's saying, hey, what do we get? We get stuff, you know, iPods, iPhones, what's, what's out new? What's, what's, we're going to the Verizon store? And he's like, nothing promised here on the earth. No. Heavenly treasures, yes. There's not a, a verse in the New Testament that looks at Christians and says, now that you've decided to follow Jesus, material wealth now. Now, we can find those in the Old Testament. We can find them in the Old Testament. Israel, if you follow me, material wealth. But as soon as we hit the New Testament, it's deafening that it's not there. Like, clearly not there. There is no social gospel. You know, hey, you can have your life. No, no. It's, you're going to give your life to Jesus. It could mean poverty or death. It may not mean. But there's no promise of material wealth anymore. And that's what he's saying. Oh, what you get is things in heaven, treasures in heaven. Don't build up treasures here. And then he kind of helps us see that in 29 and everyone who has left houses or brothers no he's going to do a little list don't let the list bother you as much as he's just trying to bring forward what could be idols for people and he's helping you see whatever these idols are money people wealth relationships whatever if they take precedence over jesus and and you put them on equal footing you got it wrong those things have to be vanquished and jesus alone has to be who you're going to worship and so he brings this list in 29 Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. He's not saying you're going to receive a hundredfold houses and a hundredfold mothers and fathers in heaven. He's saying you'll receive a hundredfold blessings, which is um, you, you inherit eternal life. So heaven, he's already told us where he, Jesus is sitting on his throne is about him. So the, the treasures, the blessings are not material blessings now. Instead, the blessings that I'm going to receive a hundredfold are being in the presence of Jesus and Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. 
the greatest thing about heaven is not the, the room or the destination, it's the person that's there. That's what the greatest thing is. So what does that mean then? If I have idols in my life now that are competing with him, since for eternity he's my eternal worship, then here, while I'm here, he should be my worship as well, not these things. So whatever those things are, get rid of them. Because they're meaningless compared to the eternal nature we'll have with Christ. And so he says, forsake all those things and you'll inherit eternal life. So here's the fourth thing I want you to see here. Being saved means that man must give God his entire life. So that's the fourth thing. These, these first three were kind of like, what about salvation and hap- how it happens at justification? This last one is, what's the cost? What's the cost then? If I'm going to say, yes, I can't do it. It's all of God. I come to you like a child. I, I say that I want to put my faith in Jesus because he died for me on the cross. There's no other way I can be saved besides Jesus. I believe. I confess my sin. Forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you forever. I want to cast off all my idols. Jesus, you're my only, my only um, person I can worship. What is it that we're trying to see here? What he's wanting us to see is that now that we've done that, our entire life has to be killing of idols and it has to be completely given to him. Our entire life now belongs to God. So whatever idols you have in your life right now that vie for the affections that should be rightly and properly placed on Jesus need to be gotten rid of. It's not even a question. Now, I know that's difficult. It's difficult in my own life. Sometimes I don't even see them. I need people to show them to me. But when they show them to me, or when I see them, I don't bear with it. I don't hope that God doesn't see it. I don't kind of let it go out of selfishness because I really like it. I immediately think like Colossians 3, 5, or Romans 8, 12. Put to death the deeds of the body. Because Christ is the only one who's worthy of worship in this, in this heart. So what he's wanting us to see is that our right response is to kill the idols. Let me say it this way. Salvation, then, is not an invitation to pray a prayer and just be saved. Instead, salvation is a call to lose your life to someone, not something, but someone greater. It's not a call just to pray a prayer. It's not a call just to exercise faith. It's also a call as it comes to lose your life to someone greater. And that is only Christ. So as we've gone through this and we've kind of seen some things about salvation, I think the best way that we can conclude is this. (coughs) You and I, both of us, have things in our heart that are idols. I know during this sermon, I'm presuming, I should say, that as we've gone through it, the Lord's already kind of shown you what you hold as idolatrous. Things that you let bubble up into your idolatrous heart, and me too, that compete for affection with Jesus. Probably the first thing on all of our lists is ourself. And then how it works itself out. What, what is it that I put, how have I put me on the throne and taken Jesus off? Or how have I put this relationship or this desire for wealth or this desire for whatever on the throne and thereby taking Jesus off. And I don't know what it is. I mean, there's so many possibilities. But what I want to suggest is during this time of response here where we have some time, we have some, we have a few songs where we can think and we don't have to stand right away and we go out, you know, to 
to the Son. But we can come in and we can say, Jesus, I'm completely aware of this idol. And I want to confess it, and I want to repent of it, and I want to ask you to remove it from my life. I, I don't know what it is, but I know if you see it right now, the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you, and he wants you to confess and repent and forsake it and put Christ back on the throne of your heart. So how would you not use this time right now to do it? Why would this not be the moment for that? We've got some time here. You can take as long as you want. I invite you to think and pray and confess. And If you can't think of anything, ask God to show you. Lord, I, I know that I'm idolatrous. I don't want these things. Show me. And if he doesn't right now in this time, ask him to bring someone alongside of you, like Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and show it to you, and that you would receive it, and that you would cast off the idol. Because we are incapable of salvation, but once we put our faith in Christ, Jesus is calling us now to give him our entire life. It's not just our actions, it's not just our paycheck, but it's every thought, it's every motivation, it's everything. And when we do, here's the greatest news. He will be our treasure for all of eternity. When we stand before that glorious throne, our hearts will be so enthralled with him. This will not be a letdown moment. This will be the pinnacle, the pinnacle of joy, the pinnacle of worship, the pinnacle of our lives when we're with him forever because he has been our treasure here and he will be our treasure for eternity. So why would we not want to today say yes? I'm going to pray and I'm just going to trust the spirit now with your soul and with your heart. However he's leading, be obedient. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we need you right now. Where we've felt in our heart right now a desire to identify idols. We know that we have idolatrous hearts. We need you right now to come and show us those things and be with us as we pray through them. Help us confess and God cast them off. We need for you to restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Restore unto us the deep love and affections for Christ. And it, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know Christ, we need for you to come now and as John 3 says, regenerate their hearts. Help them be reborn right now. And understand the gospel, understand the good news that Christ loved them and came for them and died for them in their place. They didn't have to because he did. And that they can be forgiven forever by faith in Christ. I pray for all of my friends here, wherever they are on the continuum of repentance, that you would meet them right now. And just as Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, pointedly, and tenderly would see and know that you love them and would respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.